Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5 today, and as we open up the text together to Matthew's Gospel, this time any elementary kids that want to participate in children's worship are welcome to gather out in the foyer for the beginning of that time, and for all of us uh, right here, we'll continue trekking on in uh, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, we're coming... Uh, near the end of chapter 5, and particularly we're in a subsection of uh, the sermon known as the Six Antitheses, where Jesus is saying things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Again, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, as he is uh, contrasting what people have come to believe God's standard of righteousness is with what it really is. And so today we come to chapter 5, verse 38, down through verse 42. And as you find your place there in the scriptures, let me invite you, would you join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of the word, the reading of God's word. These are the words of Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Should pause with me as we pray? Oh God, help us now, guide us now, instruct us now, that we might hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's be honest this morning. This text probably doesn't rank in uh, the top ten most exciting things that Jesus ever said. It's not exactly an attractive uh, evangelistic uh, text that makes following Jesus appear all that appealing. Because it's not a message of prosperity, but of sacrifice, self-sacrifice. If someone hits you across the face, don't hit them back. Offer the other cheek. If someone demands your shirt, give them your jacket as well. Jesus, that's not the way to grow a following. Imagine most church growth consultants would say something like, be positive, make it simple, be inviting, help people connect quickly. Jesus says, sacrifice for the sake of others. Gospel means good news. This doesn't really sound like great news. Let's remember that Jesus didn't come to to market his kingdom, at least not in the way that we might think of marketing. No, Jesus came to meet our deepest need and to call us to find new and eternal life by surrendering to him. Jesus' words here call for humility and a compassion that echoes the heart of the living God. The call to be different from the prevailing culture of the day. In fact, Jesus' whole sermon, his whole sermon on the mount really is a call for his people to be different. To live a different kind of life. And that's what we 
sung just a few moments ago. Jesus, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Well, Jesus is describing here what it means to live for the Lord. As Christians, we're to be noticeably different, salt and light in a dark and decaying world. And one way we're to be different is in how we respond to those who mistreat us. That's what Jesus is saying here. And just like with the other antitheses in this pericope, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And in each of these scenarios, in each of these places, Jesus uh, quotes an Old Testament text uh, or a summary of Old Testament texts or uh, somebody's teaching that derived from Old Testament texts, but never, never, and this is important, never does Jesus contradict the Old Testament. On the surface, if we're not familiar with the Scriptures, particularly in their context, it's going to appear as if Jesus and the Scriptures are at odds with one another. But the number one rule for faithful Bible reading and interpretation is Know the context. Know the context. In fact, it's been said that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Meaning, if we don't lean into and learn the context as we read the Bible, we will use Bible verses out of context to say whatever we want them to say. And Jesus has already said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. In other words, don't don't think that I've come to get rid of God's word that has preceded my arrival. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament. He's not adding to or taking away from what God has already said, but he's correcting the scribal misinterpretations of what God has said. So what does God say about an eye for eye and a tooth for tooth? Let's look at a couple places where uh, this language comes up in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 21, verse 23, in the context of laws regarding uh, personal injury. Listen to what? God says through Moses, he says, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And this falls right on the heels of the giving of the Ten Commandments to the newly delivered, the newly rescued Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and God is giving them principles for judicial assessment and application in this newly established society. We see it again in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19, but if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. God is instructing his people to practice justice according to the principle of lex talionis, which is Latin for law of retaliation. Law of retaliation emphasizing equitable retribution. And so here's the idea. The idea being the punishment should fit the crime. The punishment 
should fit the crime, preventing the judge or the court from being unjustly lenient or unduly harsh. In a perfect and just society, the sentence must fit the crime because God cares about justice. Indeed, God is a God who promotes perfect justice. That's what that principle is about. God promotes perfect justice. God is always just. He is always just, meaning he sets the standard. His justice is closely connected with his righteousness. His standard is right, and he always conforms to the standard. God shows no partiality, and he accepts no bribes. Moses would say, describe God this way in his song in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is he. God is just. He's a just God, and he calls his people to imitate his justice, to be right and fair in our judgments. The psalmist would praise God saying, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, God. Love and faithfulness go before you. God is just. And he's merciful. He's just and he's merciful. The Jones family has had a a sports seasonal shift from uh, softball and football to to basketball. I I love basketball. And one of the things about basketball, you don't have to be a basketball player or basketball fan to know that there's something called a foul in basketball where uh, you, you, uh, you, you have an, uh, an illegal contact, uh, with, uh, the uh, opposing team. You, you have, uh, a forced contact that leads to a penalty, a foul against you. Perhaps if you're shooting, a, a foul shot that you get to, to take. There's a penalty. There's a just consequence when you break the rules of the game. But there's also mercy because you get like four more fouls. You're not immediately taken out of, uh, the game. There's justice and there's mercy. Well, God is a God of mercy. He is a God of mercy, but his mercy doesn't eliminate his justice. His righteousness and his justice demand punishment for sin. And in his mercy, God provides the ultimate substitute to take the ultimate punishment for our sins. Right? Isn't that the message of the gospel? That's the good news that we celebrate. That's the reason that we come together again and again. That God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice of atonement that allows sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God did this. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, the gospel isn't God turning the other way, but it's God sending His Son, Jesus, in our place. Praise God for Christ in our, our place. For if we've done wrong, we deserve to be punished. The Lex Talionis, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, provided instruction for Israelite judges, but was never intended, now here's the key, was never intended to guide individuals in personal revenge. 
You see, God promotes perfect justice, but God prohibits personal revenge. He prohibits personal revenge. Jesus' words here are really about revenge. They're about retaliation. And Jesus is implying that personal revenge is the way of the world. Hitting back and paying back are the ways of the world. Venging enemies and returning favors feels like a good approach, but Jesus says no. And he doesn't say no out of nowhere. No, this is the same thing the Lord has already said. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so right in the heart of the law, surrounded by uh, warnings against perverting justice and instructions about talionic justice, God says, do not seek revenge, but love your neighbor as yourself. And such is the message of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. See, unlike the law's calls for lex talionis, Jesus' words aren't meant, they're not meant as a guide for courts and countries. Jesus isn't throwing justice out the window, but he's telling his people not to take justice into their own hands. You ever try to take justice into your own hands? We're not good at this when we've been wronged. Because emotions are I. We tend to react in unhelpful ways. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had perverted God's words. They had twisted the Bible to fit their own morals. Distorting God's law to justify personal acts of vengeance, something that is never commanded and never tolerated in the scriptures. And so Jesus comes along and says to the Bible twisters of his day, you've missed it. You've missed it. There's no place, no place for personal vengeance or retaliation among citizens of my kingdom. So if someone slaps you, same word, by the way, used to describe what the Sanhedrin did to Jesus when they struck him. Chapter 26 of Matthew's gospel when he was on trial. If someone slaps you with the back of the right hand across the right cheek, not only a painful act, but an insulting act in that day. If someone slaps you, accept the ill treatment without retaliation. Now, a few qualifications, I think, are in order so that we don't twist Jesus' words. Jesus isn't prohibiting self-defense. Jesus often withdrew to avoid violence, to, to avoid harm. That others wanted to bring on him. He's not prohibiting self-defense. Neither is Jesus prohibiting governments or law enforcement or soldiers from using force when combating evil in accordance with the law. And number three, Jesus isn't precluding victims of violent crimes from pressing charges. Jesus doesn't address those circumstances. In fact, it's often the right thing to do. 
victim of violent crime, the right approach is often to press charges for the sake of justice and also for the safety of others. So none of those are what Jesus is saying. The, the Bible gives plenty of warrant for holding sinners accountable, but Jesus warns against taking vengeance into our own hands. So if someone sues you for the shirt off your back, in that day it would have been a tunic that went all the way down to the ankles. And this quite a valuable item in ancient Palestine. This wouldn't be like it is in our day if your situation's like mine, and chances are it is. If someone wanted your shirt and a coat, you wouldn't miss it for a day, right? But in that day... A valuable item. And Jesus says, if someone wants your shirt, if someone wants your tunic, and they sue you for it, go ahead and give them your coat. A needed item in that day. Protected by God's law from permanent seizure in ancient Israel because of its necessity for warmth, especially among the poor. So Jesus is saying that his disciples ought to be willing to go above and beyond what the law required, giving up their rights for the sake of reconciliation. So strong words, radical words. The next application The next application, this is the two for one, right? If someone wants you to go one mile, go two miles with him. Reminds me of a friend whom I uh, approached some time back and asked, hey, can I borrow a a nailer? Can I borrow a nail gun for a particular project? And he's probably wondering where those are because I've not returned them just yet. I will return them, but uh, he brought me two for one. He said, here's here's two. This one doesn't work all that well all the time. So here's, here's two, a two for one. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus is Implying here, the third application portrays an abuse of authority. That's the situation, an abuse of authority through the ancient Roman practice of compulsion, where Roman soldiers would force subjugated peoples to perform menial tasks. Think of Simon, of Cyrene, the one that carried the cross of Jesus. Forced by a Roman soldier to carry the cross of of Jesus Christ. In a time of great Jewish resentment, Toward Rome. Remember that ancient Israel was occupied territory under Roman rule and Jews resented being under Roman rule. A time of great resentment toward Rome. Jesus essentially says if a Roman soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, go two. Out of compassion and a humble willingness to serve. And then finally, lastly, he says, if someone needs help, even if they're your oppressive enemy, practice charity. Give to the one who's really in need. The point is this. Don't give to the one. Don't only give to the one who flatters you and don't withhold from someone in need as an act of retaliation against them. One commentator's words are helpful here. He says, although withholding aid from an enemy was acceptable and even wise in the minds of some Jewish ethicists, Jesus condemned even passive-aggressive expressions of retaliation. He insisted that his disciples should view an enemy's adversity not as an opportunity to rub salt in his wounds or kick him while he's down, but to express love and generosity. Friends, that's radical. That's radical in Christ's day and our day in any age. But such is the way 
of Jesus Christ. And here's the primary point that I think Jesus is making in this section. Here's the primary point of the passage. Jesus calls his people to trade retaliation for reconciliation. He calls his people to trade retaliation for reconciliation. Retaliation, which is the natural impulse of human hearts wronged by others for reconciliation, the pursuit of restored friendships with former enemies. Jesus says this is the kind of inward transformation God brings about in the lives of those who know him. Selfless, sacrificial, others-serving, charitable kind of love. John would describe it this way in 1 John chapter 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He says, dear children, dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. See, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, and true love is costly. True love costs. But Jesus is saying that those who know him are equipped to love others, even at great cost to themselves, because they know, because they know the greatest love. The Bible would say it this way, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake and mine, for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Friends, Jesus is our model. Our master is the example, the perfect model of exchanging retaliation for the ultimate act of reconciliation. And the only way that we'll ever be able to practice what Jesus is preaching is by remembering that the one who is calling us to do it has already done it. Jesus has already done it. Friends, consider Jesus Upon the cross. Consider our master. Consider the son of God and savior of the world. Consider Jesus. Consider how Jesus responded when he was mistreated. When he was, when he was wronged. Peter says when they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, Jesus not only paved the way, Jesus is the way. He is the great reconciler who bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might live for righteousness. That is, so that we might not only receive God's forgiveness, his full and complete forgiveness, but that we also might live lives that now suggest we know the forgiving God. Lives that begin to reflect the character of our Savior. In essence, that's what Jesus is describing here in his Sermon on the Mount. What life looks like, what life looks like for those who follow him. A different kind of life. 
Life marked by humility and service and sacrifice for God's glory and for the world's good. Why would would an 18-year-old commit several months to go to an unknown place to serve among an an unreached people in a place where people speak a different language and practice a different culture and worship false gods because she's encountered Christ the King and the Savior of the world. Peter would say it this way. He'd say, dear friends, dear believers, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives. Live such good, upright, upstanding, generous, kind, good lives among the pagans, among unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Believer, did you know that this world is not your home? This isn't it. And when... We live like it is. And so often we live like it is. When we live like this is it, like this is the place, this is our forever home, it's a heck of a lot harder to put the needs of someone else before our very own. But friends, the Christian life is one of increasing selflessness for as we encounter the grace of Jesus Christ, we remember that each of us are invited to participate in a kingdom infinitely more significant than any of us and called by the king to play an extraordinary role in his eternal kingdom and that's to influence the world for the glory of God. So let's be a people who follow Christ for God's glory and the world's good. Let's follow Christ for God's glory And for the world's good. That's why Jesus' people turn the other cheek. That's why Jesus' people give their coats away. And that's why Jesus' people go the extra mile for God's glory and for the world's good. For one day, he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And on that day, not a single soul who lived the Jesus day, the Jesus way, will regret a single day of living that way. And on that day, on that future day, many souls, I believe, will be gathered with him for all of eternity because of people like you and me who heard the good news, who turned to Christ, and who began living the Jesus way. Friend, are you living the Jesus way? Father, this morning we thank you for Jesus Christ. God, this morning we thank you for the gospel of Christ. Lord, this morning we we pray that your spirit would impress the truths of Christ upon our hearts, that these would not merely be words that we hear, but Lord, that the words of our Savior would be a message to believe and a way to live that reflects hearts that have been gripped and changed and transformed and stirred and captured by the mercy of the Most High God. Oh God, stir us to turn to Christ, to trust in Christ, and to live for Christ.
And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.